You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. and welcome to Corporate Quitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ionello, and today's guest, his name is Mike Solitro. He's a real estate attorney, broker associate, and the founder of Accomplished RE. He helps real estate and small business professionals get more bang for their buck by doing less but getting more, which is everyone's dream. For more than a decade, Mike has leveraged dispute resolution practices and lean principles to eliminate challenges and enhance collaboration, which is, I think, ideal in any small business, let alone real estate. So thank you so much for coming on, Mike. I know you have a ton of gold nuggets to share with my audience. Thank you, Gabby. Yes, I'm uh, thrilled to be here. And please don't set that bar too high with with a ton of gold nuggets. I will do my best. (laughs) Oh, come on. Don't discredit yourself. But I know when we got to know each other, you explain your story a little bit. But can you get into it more? Because I know it wasn't all butterflies and daisies. You didn't just straight go into real estate. So like, what's the full backstory of how you got into this? Sure. Yeah. More like most people coming out of college, I knew, exa- no, I'm just kidding. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I took my first job when I moved to New York City and it was with a real estate investment and analysis firm. And I remember showing up that first day and there was, you know, computers, the internet existed, but my desk was just a stack of papers and a telephone. And I'm immediately thinking, what have I got myself into as my job basically consisted of just picking up the phone, calling people all over the country, talking to them about their property, their investments, or what they were looking to learn. And then quickly telling me, hey kid, you don't know anything. You better learn about real estate if you're going to stick in this profession, in this job. So that's what I did. The Southeast was my market. I learned as much as I could. And I quickly picked up that information was pretty valuable in real estate. And not just, you know, this is happening there, but this is important to you because, and this is what your competitor, colleague, neighbor is doing. And then as you see in real estate, hyper-local and what's actually going on in your market is, is always relevant. That was my big takeaway from that role. I've bounced around. I've had a circuitous route, but that always has stuck with me, that understanding who you're talking to, what's important to them, and say, hey, this might be valuable to you because, or have you considered this and have good questions. I've had the ability to do a few different things in real estate and really appreciate that real estate means a ton of different things to people. For some, it's this is where I live and that's it. For others, it's their investment portfolio. It's how they make money. It's all that they do. And it's everything in between those two things. Uh, So just kind of remembering that it's different things, different folks. So, you know, what was your sign it's time to leave corporate, right? You had this cushy job in New York City, right? Kind of like similarly to I did. So what was the turning point for you where you're like, I'm actually going to pursue real estate on my own instead of being like an analyst or a manager or something like that? Yeah, I um, I went back and forth through New York City, Boston, different roles, different types. And I was talking to a guy last week in a similar situation where I would keep getting promoted. I would keep getting a better job, a better role, a better title. And the money was good. And it was like, well, I don't really like what I'm doing. And I don't see this long term, but it's just, it's too good to leave. And I think that's kind of part of the draw of why people don't do it. But for me, the sign was... I got to a, we'll call it a middle manager role. I was actually at an insurance company at the time. I just saw that it was really hard to both manage my team, who was looking to me for direction, for help, for kind of everything, and then to manage the expectation of the executives and upper management. You know, In the middle, you're massaging the message to everybody, and you're pretty much disappointing everybody on a daily basis. That was tough. And the other part is I've never been good at office politics. I saw that to have a long-term career in kind of corporate, you need to be good at at least one, if not both of those things, and navigate them. So I didn't have the interest in the politics. 
and the management piece was something that I continue to work on because that's what I work on a lot with my clients. But it's a tough skill to balance being in that middle role where you've got a team who's looking to you and you're trying to appease or work with a bunch of corporate executives as well. Yeah. Was there like a, oh shit moment where you're like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like some colleague fucked up or like a slow burn type of feel. I had a few of those. I know the one that I think of. I remember it was a very formal manager training program and I was sitting there and they made my role just seem so important and so kind of like, this is fantastic. This is awesome. And I remember thinking, I was like, I just left my office where I'm going to go back and do this. And it's not that important. Nobody really cares. Like, it sounds fantastic, but I know the day-to-day and I know what it's really like. And it's not the role that we're painting here. That was tough. As far as having people on my team like, oh, shit, I can't believe you've done that. Uh, it's it's all over. I, I In that role, I had to pass on my portfolio of work to somebody on my team. And my job was to train that person. And I will leave that person's gender out because I don't want to give it away. But constantly, over and over, I would hear things or see things that were going on and that they were my files. I knew them in and out. And then I would look at the results and be like, I can't believe this is what they've turned into or you thought this was a good idea. And we had to kind of reverse courses and save it as much as possible. So I learned that, uh, you know, one-on-one coaching training was different for each of my employees in that role as a manager that everybody needs a little different in what what they're told, how they learn, and what makes them tick. Yeah. It's funny, though, because you were at this insurance company, and I was in asset management as in real estate at one point, too. And it's funny how they make it seem like what you're doing is, like, godly, almost to the level of, like, saving lives as, like, an operator and, like, like, a doctor. And you're just, like, all I'm doing is, like, building a portfolio. Like, I'm not saving anyone. This is not, I don't need to do this today. Like, relax. They love to do that. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is like, nobody gives a shit. It's hard. Like people don't care. I know that we're talking about kind of doing that godly work, but I go back there and the culture really is a big part. So I think if you are going to stick with corporate or find a role that works for you, the culture is of utmost importance. And the ultimate endpoint for me there was my role got relocated. So I don't know. I may have still been there today because like I said, it was a good enough role. The money was good. And everything was okay. So that the option of, hey, do you want to move where you live? Do you want to go to a different office? It's like, no, I don't want to do that. So that's what finally got me out the door. So I'm thrilled it happened. But if that hadn't been the case, who knows? So why choose real estate? Like, what was the pull for getting into real estate? Because, right, someone can argue, well, that's the same thing, right? You're not really saving lives. Why that avenue? Was it like, oh, the money was cool, like the notoriety? Like, what specifically drew you in? No, and having that acknowledgement up front that I am not saving lives and that I don't take too much too seriously, I think helps me on a daily basis because there are plenty of people that I interact with in non-life-saving roles that they do think that's not only what they're doing, but that everyone should acknowledge that and praise them for it. So I try to take very little too seriously. But why real estate? Like I said, I've had the ability to kind of bounce around, be in different roles, different companies, see things, and specifically being on the brokerage, the investment, and the legal side as an attorney, you see a deal from A to Z, beginning to end, where things go smoothly, where handoffs get dropped, and where things could ultimately be better, both for the professionals, the practitioners, and then ultimately the clients. I see a lot of opportunity there because one good thing that came out of corporate for me was I did uh, some internal consulting when I was there, 
And you learn Lean, Six Sigma, process systems, all the stuff that people really don't like to talk about, but are super important in building a business and having operations that work. So on the attorney side, you see that most real estate agents, they're really good at sales. They're not as good always as running a business or providing a client experience or replicating what a good business looks like. So having that background, seeing a deal from kind of all angles, like this makes sense. And then always remembering, yeah, I'm not saving lives, but I can help a lot of people both in their day job and people who, you know, I just want to buy a house. Or like I said, I'm investing in property. I know how this goes. I want to work with people who know their shit, know what they're doing and can make my life easy. So it was just a nice fit on all those things for me. Can you explain, you mentioned the term like lean principles or lean kind of strategies. For my listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the term, can you explain what that means a little bit more? Sure. So with lean, there's plenty of hard and fast rules. And as a lawyer, I am not a great one because I don't always care about all of the rules or how everything fits together. But the main principle of lean is how can I make something from beginning to end in as few steps as possible? Or if I have to repeat it, I take out anything that's waste or does not provide value to the end user. So that can be a colleague, a client, both. So how can I get A, B, C, D? And I look at it and it's like, I probably don't need to do B and I can still get to D okay. And actually for the time or money I put in on step B, it's not worth it because the person I'm handing it off to is never going to look at that part of the report or they don't care what I did there. So it's just understanding Here's my steps that I am taking currently. Is it providing value? And is it the least wasteful way to provide that to my end user, to my client? Uh, so that's kind of how I look at lean. It's, there are some who study it for you know, their entire careers, but it's always, is there a better way to do it? Is it more efficient? And who's going to look at this and how will it help them? When someone goes through that process, is it just trial by fire, right? Continually doing these processes and kind of fine tuning and figuring out what works best? Or is there an actual methodology to figure that out? Yeah, that's a great question. And there is plenty of methodologies and practices behind it. But the important things are mapping, understanding what's taking place. So talking to the people that actually do the work. And then just to circle back, that's the other part about corporate is that the people who do the work very rarely have a say when these things change or when there's different policy or different procedure. And it's like, hey, this is happening at my desk. Are you interested in what I see? No, we're at a different office. We're at a management level. So What's good about Lean is you care about what the people who are touching the work, doing the work, delivering it to your clients. What they say, they say, hey, this is working great, or here's a snag, and here's a possible solution. So twofold, if you listen to what they're saying, one, you probably have an idea of what's happening at their desk, and two, you engage them, because it's like, wow, they actually care what I think. Uh, so to get back to your question, yeah, you want to have a, a good map, a good understanding of what's actually happening, talk to the people doing the work, doing the process, and then the next user, the end user, the client, and make sure that their expectations are met, what they're looking for, and if there are things that can be done better, cheaper, faster type thing, and working them all in. And then it is do it again, do it again, do it again. So get to your end, make it leaner, make it faster, and then keep doing it. There's no end line. That's always kind of a continuous improvement cycle. Yeah. I also, now that you're explaining it, see lean as something that can be applied to really anything. So even like if there is no touch point with a client, but let's say you're working through your funnel for like launching a product or something like, do you really need to spruce up that landing page or is it actually not so detrimental? Like, and maybe it is right. But asking yourself those questions as you outline what actually needs to be done to get you from maybe creating the product and then selling it is something that could be considered part of that process. Exactly. That's a good example. Yeah. 
So what are some mistakes that new business owners or real estate agents make? Like how can we maximize their business model? Like we already know the lean method or I guess the lean way of approaching things, but do you have anything else that you recommend? Because I know you consult people, obviously for real estate, but also for small businesses too. Yeah, the the few things that I see most common with people either jumping into a new venture or just getting started in general. First is the draw of saying yes to everybody and everything that comes across their desk. And that's really easy to say from somebody on the outside or trying to help say, well, you know, you probably shouldn't have taken that client or this project wasn't the best. It's like, well, I need to pay my bills. I need to feed my family, whatever. So that's that's hard. But in doing so, it's important to remember that in saying yes, you're in turn saying no to somebody else. And that time is now being used on that project, that client, that specific situation. So that's part number two, which is not as obvious that I'll see for new business owners, real estate agents, is that not having idea where their resources are going. And then even if they do know where their time, energy, and money is being spent, generally they've got very little idea on what the return on those things are. So it's, I'm doing all of these things. I work super hard, but I don't know how much time I'm spending on generating a new business or what it takes for me as far as number of touches with certain prospects to turn that client into a deal and then how long that takes. Ultimately, the last piece, yes, I know what I'm doing. Yes, I know what my return is, but is that still a good use of my time? So that goes back to the original thing that, yes, I'm tracking everything and it seems to be okay and I'm getting 2x on my time, but I'm passing up an opportunity that could actually lead to 10x or who knows how much, but I'm leveraging my time doing something else. So knowing what's important, knowing what fits for you, your business model, and then what makes the most sense financially in the back end. Do you have any strategies that you use to actually see what's working and what's not? Like, right, you say maximize your business model. How does a new business owner who has zero experience even like successfully running a business do a self-audit, if you will, to make sure they're using their time effectively, right? Because time is like your biggest factor in business when you first start because like you're trying to run against money and like you have to make it work in the first year you're kind of in a really tough place yeah in real estate that's i don't say most specific or most accurate but it is because you're only making money when deals close for the most part as, as a residential real estate agent the first thing that you need to know is that that year that whatever time period is that it's a set amount of time so you need to understand what your goals are and set but how you let your schedule be either dictated by your decisions or how you set yourself up for success. So the first thing that you need to know is this is the clientele I want to work with and this is how I plan on engaging them. So we'll we'll look at that. A lot of my clients, they are already at a successful place and they're looking to either get more efficient, more effective or both. But for somebody who's new in the area, there has to be a draw. And the, the first question you should answer is because there's a ton of real estate agents. So what makes you different, better, or special? In setting up your schedule, in setting up your time, when I meet somebody who may want to do business with me, how can I answer one, if not all three of those things? Because they're going to find somebody else who does what you do and can probably do it better. So if you can't explain and very quickly and very clearly to them, you're not going to be able to even have the opportunity to build that business. So when starting, understand that that's what will set you apart from your competition and will make you attractive potential clients. So I want to ask you a question about like busyness, because one of the things I've had to unlearn from being in corporate and then running the show myself is that there's a difference between like filling my time, my schedule with like anything to make it look like I'm productive. And then going back to you discussing, right, the lean method or strategies and even right, maximizing your business model. 
Was there any unlearning that had to be done when you transitioned into real estate? And also, what's your perspective on just like time management and just busyness and success? Yeah, I think mindset's the right way to start that topic because when you're in corporate, it's, and it's probably not right, but I I would find myself, I need to fill X amount of hours. So it's, you're looking at the clock, things are getting stretched out and it's like, when will this be over? And I can truthfully say there are very few, if ever times since I've kind of done my own thing these last few years where it's like, I hate doing this or I'm doing this just for the sake of doing it or I'm going to do it till five o'clock then I'm going to stop. Like for the first real time, you get to do the work you want to do and you want to do as much of it as you can. So the idea of time management is, I don't want to say is not a real thing because everyone has the same amount of time, but just understanding what you're doing with your time and how can you best use it for your goals, for your business, for what you want to achieve. So the mindset is is the first thing for me, that when you have a role in corporate that you know you've got to fill 37 and a half, 40 hours, whatever it is a week, that it's different where it's like, I need to be here. I need to do these things. That when you're on your own, you don't have that structure. So you better figure out what you should be doing during that time. And then you might actually, as I've seen, you might want to work as much as possible where it's like you look forward to these things because you see direct correlation to the success of your business. Yeah. Do you ever like, at least for me in the beginning, I had a lot of guilt if I took any relaxing time or like took a bit of a break when you run the business yourself. Now more of an inflow, but that scheduling, right? The nine to five, if you will, is still something that I'm butting heads with at times. Yeah. um, No, I I try not to feel guilty for doing things that are good for mindset, myself, my family, my my overall well-being, that I understand that if I'm doing things to waste time, yeah, then that's probably not good. But doing other things is is important to make sure that when I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm fully focused. Because if you start trying to juggle too many things, then nothing really gets done well. So I, I try not to be concerned about that in general. And just to keep going back to it, if you can properly schedule or at least be cognizant of here's what has got done, here's what needs to get done, here's what's going to get pushed off, and then time blocking and then being really tough on yourself on keeping that, it's easier. And I think it's important to to do the things that are important to you personally as well as professionally, because if you start filling one and not the other, that I think both will suffer. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what happens in corporate, right? So many people feel like they are stuck and they like are desperately trying to get out is because the bucket is way too full on the corporate side and not enough balance between the personal side either. So it's just work, 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 no play. Yeah. And even if it's not play, if it's like, you know, the thing I like to do most when I'm away from my work or away from my desk is, you know, reading or whatever, you know, something that's not necessarily fun to anybody else. You need to know what makes yourself tick. And if it's like, well, I need to sleep an extra three hours on this day, then do it and don't feel guilty about it because then you're going to just spend X amount of hours thinking, you know, I probably couldn't have done, I could have done this better. And it's like, well, it's done. So you got to need to move on anyway. Yeah. Agreed. It's hard not to beat yourself up though, because corporate has trained our minds to think that like, if you're not working, your time is wasted. Yeah. That's in a mindset that I felt myself that I'm here. I need to fill this time when really, if you could just reward people for here's your task, here's your job. It's if you can get this done, I don't care where you do it from. And, you know, we're seeing more of it with remote. It's that it should be more of a end results. Like this is what we need from your role, your department, your team. If you get it done in this time, great. If it takes longer, you know, if you have the right culture, you got team who will put the extra in to do it, but it's very rare. And unfortunately it's more of micromanagement and uh, 40 hours. 
Yeah, unfortunately. But I think things are changing, hopefully, I think, in the system to kind of reflect these newer practices, which is great. So we'll see. But I'm wondering, you know, now that we're talking about business models and all this stuff, how can someone figure out what problem they're actually solving and like what even clientele to cater to? Because, right, even if you think from a real estate perspective or a small business, right, someone who's online business, the idea of even figuring out what problem to solve, because there are so many, is daunting, let alone choosing a specific clientele. Because at the beginning, you're just like, I just want to fucking make money. I need to make this work. So you're like, let's do it all, right? Let's solve everything. But then I'm sure you shoot yourself in the foot. So can you speak on that? Yeah, that's a really good question for a couple different reasons. When you are you know, running your own thing, you're not in the a structure of a, of a company and organization that there are plenty of problems all around that need to be solved. So first, you got to prioritize what's my biggest problem. And generally, it is in line with, as you said, I need to make money. So it's my client, my customers, who am I working with, who am I working with next, and not always looking to what's happening down the lines. How the people that I'm working with now, how can I give them what they're looking for? So step one is in problem solving is understanding what your business is and what problem of your clients you solve. So if you can't communicate that, if you can't deliver on that, then your business is probably not set up for the long run. So that's step one. Who I work with, how do I help them? What are they looking for? Kind of next level you know, when problems come up, you've prioritized. This is obviously a big problem because I've talked to a certain number of customers. I've talked to my team and this keeps coming up. You need to make sure that what you're fixing or solving or the stress you're eliminating, whatever you want to call it, because problems is one of those buzzwords, is that it's not just a symptom. So that's something that is very bad. But it's one of those things that if you solve a symptom and not the actual problem, you're wasting a lot of time. Your problem is going to come back. And it'll probably come back worse, if not in a different form. And you've now back to step one or to where you should have been originally. So it's kind of like if you are, you're saying you want to not be tired anymore, right? You have fatigue. So you're like, well, I'm going to solve the problem by drinking more coffee, right? Or sleeping more. But the actual problem is you need to lose weight so you can, you know, I don't know, different energy levels or change your hormones or something. Like if you just go to someone who's going to teach you how to sleep better, it might not actually solve the problem. The need is different than the want. Is that what you're kind of getting at too? It, it is, and that's a good example. The one that I, I give uh, sometimes is way back, I was doing an open house, and uh, I was quickly setting up. I run upstairs, and in the bathroom, there's just this puddle on the floor. So I quickly, I'm like, shit, people are going to be here any minute. How am I going to take care of this? Just quickly grab towels from the garage, wipe it up, problem solved, right? No, somebody comes to the open house 20 minutes later, and like, there's a ton of water in the upstairs bathroom. You know, so obviously they're not buying this house this thing has come up, is a leaky pipe. So it's like, all right, I got rid of the water, which was a symptom of the leaky pipe. If I'd actually taken two minutes and said, where's this coming from? Why is this happening? I could have called somebody or stopped the actual pipe from leaking the actual problem. Wouldn't have had to pick up the water over and over, which in my you know silly example that I keep doing, that I'm, just, I'm still going to keep getting water on the floor. I need to stop the pipe before uh, I pick it up. Same with your sleeping example, that if you just treat or look for the quick fix, a lot of times you're going to have a bigger, if not worse problem. Yeah. It's just then trying to, one of the things that I've had issues with when it comes to selling and stuff is that a lot of people are looking for the quick fix and they're not willing to kind of invest or even explore the alternatives to these longer term solutions so that it's like, okay, like, are you just not the right person or is the messaging incorrect, right? Is it a messaging thing or is it that the actual confidence isn't there? Like what are usually the problems when it comes with that? I think it's, I don't say always a messaging thing, but it's a communication thing for sure. Because the thing that 
you're doing is you're solving their pain. So if you can find out what's painful about it, then you need to be able to communicate A, why it's a problem for them and how you can solve it. Because a lot of times, like going back to systems and process, you know what salespeople never want to talk about and put zero value on? Systems and process. It's like, I don't care. I make money by selling. I don't care how it looks. So you need to solve that pain. And the way that I do it is we talk about the next deal treadmill, that trying to close a real estate transaction and you're concerned more about who your next client's going to be. It's like, well, do you know who knows that? Your current client who feels ignored and they feel terrible because like, I have all these questions and you can't return my call now because you're more concerned about who your next line of business is. So when I talk to real estate agents, it's like, your concern, your view to get that next client in the door, that's causing stress with your current client. That's causing stress for you. Ultimately, it's never going to stop. So if you don't have an operation in place where there's clients coming in and the ones that you have are being serviced and being serviced in a way where they're going to tell people about you, you're going to just keep jumping from deal to deal to deal until, unfortunately, the day you drop dead because there's nothing that's going to stop this cycle. Sometimes that will work as, yeah, that is stressful for me. That's a real pain point, and I've got to solve that for them. So it is in the messaging there. And the other thing is, and you hit on it as well, that you kind of communicate what they want, what they think will fix, and then you work with them on what they actually need. This has been coached to me that coaching in real estate, there's thousands of coaches, there's lots of training. It's a space that's like, I don't need a coach. I'm really good. Like if you're in real estate, you need to have a strong persona. You have a, a veneer that's like, I'm great. I don't need your fucking help. Like that's what you're kind of want to show people. I've been coached like, well, how about strategic consulting? It's like strategic consulting. Yeah, I'd love that. That sounds great. Really, we're still just coaching, but it's now under a different rubric, a different way to communicate it. Consulting is just another way to call it coaching. So understanding what the stress is, what the pain is, and then ultimately what they want. So how do you find out what they actually want? Because that's the thing too, is people don't know what they want. So someone will come to me and say, I want coaching. And I'm like, that's great. And then when you actually get on the phone and they're like, oh, I'm actually not going to purchase because I really want branding help. I'm like, but that's not what you told me. So then how do you actually get to the point of them recognizing what they want and then figuring out how to deliver to them. Because I think you had said it, and a lot of people say it too, is like, no one wants to be sold to, but everyone wants to buy, right? We all want to buy shit, but we don't want to be sold to. So what's the sweet you know, situation or deal or strategy with that? Yeah, the first step of that is good questions. Before I get involved with any of my long-term clients, we have a pretty long introduction, and then we have a diagnostic analysis consultation, whatever you want to call it, where we'll get into their business. And plenty of times we've left that call. It's like, it doesn't make sense for us to do business. doesn't make sense for us to do business now, or this might be something to revisit. So it's being able to ask a good question, listen, follow up, keep following up and get to ultimately what their interests are. And this goes back to some of the stuff I learned as a lawyer, which you learn the difference between a position and an interest. Something is, you know, position. Yes, no. But why is it that? So understanding what's important. And I just actually went over this on a call earlier today was that, you know, no, I can't join your monthly call in the first every month. So you think, well, he's not interested in my call or he doesn't, this isn't important to him or this doesn't work. When in reality, I might be divorced and the only time I can see my kids is on the first at that time. But I'm not going to tell you that unless you ask me or unless we get there. So it's not that I'm not interested in going to your event on the first of each month. It's that it's my only chance to see my family and you didn't ask me about that. So you didn't know. So being 
smart enough to know that even though they're saying no or they're telling you something, that there are good follow-up questions you need to ask to either confirm what you think you know is their position or to learn more about their interests. So that's what I found pretty helpful in, in at least starting a lot of my client relationships. And it breaks down a lot of those walls so you're not have somebody who's interested in coaching and then branding and then marketing. It's like, do you understand that uh, there's a relationship between those things and maybe something we can work together on? I'm glad you brought that up because my next question was going to be like, how do you even build up your client network authentically, right? Not like in a gross way where you're just like blasting them a cold email or not even that, but just like in a way so that it's showing you as being the expert and educational and informative and a strong person to work with, but also like you have to get paid with what you're doing. Like it's not free shit, right? So there's a fine balance between everything. Yes, there is. And I don't want to say I cringe at the word expert, but I never will call myself that. So I don't sell myself as I'm an expert on this. I know what I know. And I know that as we talked at the very beginning, collaboration, I work well with others and I can help others dig into their business and make a better product for their clients. So I talk a lot about that and some people really value that. And that's where I find my networking, my conversations, my possible leads. That's where they come from. The people that realize that, yes, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I need to work with others for it to be something that's successful, something that runs, runs well. So that's kind of naturally where it is. I am not a sales guy. My background is not in sales. That does not mean that, you know, sales is bad. It does not mean I don't talk about sales or that ultimately we're all selling something. So as you, as you referenced and almost caught yourself that kind of gross way, it's like, yes, it is gross, but it must work for somebody or some sector. So while I don't teach it, while I don't use it, while I don't love it, I get that it can work and I will let somebody else do it necessarily. And I acknowledge that when I meet somebody like that, it might not be a good fit. And I've gotten to a point where I'm okay saying that, that I don't need to change my approach or change what I'm doing to kind of fit a different paradigm or a different concept that might not be best for me and my client. So if you're not taking the typical salesy approach, what is your approach then for like establishing those relationships? Give me the deets, Mike. Yeah. So (laughs) the typical salesy approach, I think that's something that has evolved over time because as we said, people like to buy stuff. So is that reaching out to people I don't know? Yeah, sure. I, I will talk to people that I don't know. But it goes back to my very first story of when I pick up the phone and I call people. I was not selling them anything. I was asking them questions about their real estate holdings or their investment or their market. Similar to selling is they want to know what's in it for them, why they should talk to you, and why they should even you know consider answering some of your questions. So if you put thought into who I'm talking to, what I'm talking about, and how it can be valuable to them. That's the first step. The second is actually delivering on that. So if you say those things, hey, you know, do you have 10 minutes to talk about X, Y, Z? Sure. And you get on the phone, it's like, well, I know I said that, but how about buying this for me instead? It's like, now you've lost all credibility. So establishing credibility, providing value, and then kind of having that bridge to we might be able to work together. We should be able to have a deeper conversation. Is this something that's interest to you? Yes, no, maybe. Uh, one of the best things I heard from somebody who is much, much better with sales than I am, some will, some won't, so what, someone's waiting. So it's SW four times. And it's like, you know, if you take all this personally, because, you know, there's probably eight or nine, 10 no's in a row, you're not going to get to that person who wants what you've got or who can be helped. So you do have to have that tough skin, that salesy approach when it comes to being told no, because 
you think that everybody should want to work with you or everybody that you reach out to is your perfect client, is in your niche, but that's not, you know, you might catch them on a bad day. You might catch them when they're not interested, no matter what you communicate, no matter how valuable you think it is, that it's, it's not going to work then. So being okay to move on, try again, you know, understanding your email is never as perfect or it's never going to be as top of mind for them as it is to you. Where it's like, you know, I emailed you three months ago, but you ignored me. So we should talk about that. It's like, no, you know, I never saw it or I saw it and I have not thought about it. So don't worry about addressing it. This goes back to not taking things too seriously. You're not, you're not curing cancer. You're not saving anybody's life necessarily. So don't treat it that way either. I love the S4 fourth time thing. I'm definitely going to use that. I'm pocketing that. I need it. But um, I want to ask a question just because even from my own real estate experience when I was an agent and just now being in my own business, totally different realms, but we're still in the, basically the world of selling in a sense. Right. As an agent, I'm sure people come to you and they ask you questions about like, what's the market like? Oh, I'm looking at this property. And right. that you run around and you show them all these houses and then they don't buy or they don't do this or they don't do that. Is there a time where there's ever giving too much value away? or too much of your time away? Or would you say, regardless, it's still good because you're putting out like, I don't want to say goodness to the world, but at least you're sending a signal of like, I know what I'm doing and maybe down the line they are interested or maybe they know someone or have any thoughts on that? Now, that's a great question because I've asked it myself because I've gotten to a point where it's like, I feel that the starting point is put good out there, put value out there, and then good will come back. And the answer that I've got from people who I consider better than me at these things or know more than I do is that continue to do it in a way that is not detrimental to you or to your business. So just to keep doing the good things. Someone is asking for more that, you know, be genuine, be honest, and keep putting the good out there. Uh, you know, if someone's putting you in a position that's got to do things that, you know, question your ethics or put you in a bad light, that's one thing. But if it's so long as someone's not taking advantage of you, it seems that the consensus is that it's okay to do it. The caveat then would be going back to what are you not doing because you're doing that stuff? So if you are spending, you know, using the real estate example, if I'm showing a buyer 20 houses this week and I know they are not going to buy this house no matter if it's perfect, the right neighborhood, the right price, but I'm doing it because I want to be nice, you need to get to a point where it's like, you know, I'm actually losing a lot of business or I'm losing the opportunity for something else because of this. So if you can do good, communicate what the agreements or expectations between the parties are, I think you're okay. You should not just go out hoping that things work out well and just thinking that doing good deeds will lead to a strong business. You probably shouldn't take advantage of everybody you meet either or think that you need to win every conversation you have. So I think that there is a balance there. There's a lot out there on this. And I try to remind myself that the more good I can do for others will come back, even if it's not that same person. Yeah. I've found that that is usually the case, even if it takes a really long time, which it usually does, but it, it will always come back around. Like there was this great example of October of last year when Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp went down, I had to launch the same exact day. Great timing. So my sales didn't go as well, all that stuff. But luckily a news outlet had picked up on a video I had made about like rolling my eyes at the fact that of course the day that I launched something, it doesn't go to plan. So I was supposed to be featured in that article, but instead a bunch of friends who I'd recommended was in that article. And I was bummed because when the article came out, all my friends were in it, but I wasn't. So I was like, fuck, like that could have been the thing, right? That could have been the thing that set my business off. And I was hearing I'm throwing a pity party. And then like two months later is when my New York Times article got picked up and then everything else snowballed. So it was like, I don't want to say the shitty thing, but like the inconvenient thing happened, even though I let other people kind of take the freedom and the, the stardom in that moment. And then the good thing happened two months later. 
even better than I could have imagined. That's a really cool story because I think it you know, gives a good example of what we just talked about. And I just want to, and I forgot to say, don't keep score because I think that's the other thing is that it's like, you know, I help this person out. They should be, they owe me one. Like, once you start doing that, like... <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I feel like I need to like erase the chalkboard in my mind sometimes of that shit. And yeah, the, the other the other thing is that, you know, planning, preparation, super important, always important. But just as your story uh, highlights that most likely how you plan for things to work out or the benefits that probably is not how it's actually going to work out. So yes, continue planning, preparing, but understand that's probably not going to go the way that you had anticipated or when something changes to roll with it and be okay with it. Yeah, agreed. Never goes to plan, but that's part of the plan is it doesn't go to plan. That's right. Uh, Well, this has been great. I definitely, I learned a lot even about just sales and just managing relationships and business and stuff like that. But one thing I like to do with every single guest is just wrap up with one final gold nugget, right? One question is if you could give advice to your younger self, right? Young Mike, what would that be? Yeah, that's a good one because as I've gotten older, I've realized that there is just a ton of stuff to know and that Back, you know, when in my early 20s, I thought not only I knew everything, but I knew everything better than mostly everybody else. So that this narrow mind is like, yeah, of course I know that. Let me tell you why I'm right. And the fact that might not be right, might not have considered it or barely crossed my mind. Then when I would meet somebody who was much smarter than me, said things much, much better than I could, I was like, wow, that's, this must be one, this must be a unicorn because there can't be many people like this. But I would tell myself that there is, so much to know that you know so little will always know so little you know never stop learning never think that you know you know everything there is to know because there's probably more there's a different way to think about it and just be open to those things and remember that unless you're actually saving lives you're not so don't take it too seriously because that's that that's really what helped me and the other thing i haven't said that i think is important from leaving corporate that i found myself sometimes thinking that it's okay to work in corporate. You shouldn't look down on your friends and family that have corporate jobs that because it's it's right for them whatever the situation is that you know not everybody's meant to work on their own thing for themselves and I found it, I love it and I hope to never leave it. So that's good and that's good for me, but same to knowing everything that that might change and it's not not something I want to look down on as like oh you still have a 9 to 5 type thing like that's a shitty mindset and to keep reminding myself you don't know everything, there's more to know and kind of be humble. Yeah, I love that. And also, yeah, I know I am the corporate quitter, but uh, there's nothing bad about corporate. But for the people who are dying to leave, it's okay, too, to leave. But this has been awesome. Can you let everyone know where they can find you if they want to connect with you, compliment you on the episode, or maybe work with you within your your business and all of that? Yeah, sure. The uh, two best places, accomplishedre.com, and I'm on LinkedIn, Mike Salitro. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was fun, Gabby. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter podcast. Visit corporatequitter.com for resources, extended content, and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter, and to learn more about how you can leave the nine to five, follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys.